Girl Guide Cookies. It's the season usually, from the end of January through until sometime in March. I certainly remember selling my fair of them growing up. We didn't have the technology back in those days to sell them, other than going door to door in our, my neighborhood or, or standing outside the grocery store to sell a, a box or two. Of course, we always ended up with our fair share of them to eat at home. I think my dad encouraged that. He still does like cookies. Well, these days, things have certainly changed. Given our current circumstances, cookies can actually be purchased online, either through a girl guide you know who has her own direct link to her group's page, or by buying them directly from Girl Guides of Canada. I also read about parents who advertise on their Facebook pages in an effort to sell them to family and friends with a, a subtle twist of the arm. Here in Canada, we seem to have the two standard kinds of cookies that you can buy. Either the chocolatey mint cookies or the vanilla and chocolate cream filled ones. But in the US, I found that they had about a dozen different kinds, including Girl Scout s'mores. I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous. That sounds so good. I found out that Girl Scouts have been selling cookies since the early 1900s when local troops made their own cookies from a special recipe, then packaged them in wax paper bags with a Girl Scout seal on them, then sold them door to door for 35 cents a dozen. Those were the days, my goodness. So I was curious, who started all of this? Well, it was actually Florence E. Neal a Girl Scout director in Chicago who encouraged members to bake and sell these cookies as a fundraiser. She even provided a sugar cookie recipe to use. The cookies only experienced a brief hiatus during World War II when there was a shortage of flour, sugar, and butter. That year, they sold calendars instead. And from that time on, it is what we have waited for each year, for cookie season to start. For me, it is definitely the chocolate cream filled ones. They sell really quickly. Let's see, delicious, great tasting cookies purchased for a great cause. Hmm, to build up girls of courage and confidence. That's a good deal, I'd say. Okay, so why am I going on about these cookies? Other than the obvious calorie consumption, well, it reminded me of the story of Abraham and Sarah from Genesis. Girls are asked to undertake a request from on high, which is a difficult for us for them as it is for us, to ensure a future legacy for those guides who will come after them. Now, is another thing to do what Abram had been asked to do. That is because when Abram was asked to follow God, he was asked to give up life as he knew it. He had to give up his name, he had to leave his country. He had to abandon his ancestors and their gods, and he had to walk out into a new life, trusting that God would provide for him and his family. Have you ever tried to get an elderly person to move houses, let alone move to another neighborhood? Change is hard for the best of us, but when you have lived in your home for 60 plus years, change is certainly not easy. 
If you agree to follow me, God said to Abram, if you let go of everything you know, I will make you the father of a great nation. You will be the ancestor of kings, the source of whole races of people, the beginning of a new kind of humanity. But in order to gain all of this, you have to give up, on, up yourself on your ideas of who you are and who you serve. In order to let God change his life, Abram had to let go of who he was and be willing to let God make him anew. Abram and Sarah ended up living most of their lives childless and without the land that had been promised to them. But then an angelic visitor came to them when Abraham was 99 and Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old and the promise of God was repeated to them. You will have land and you will have descendants. This was far-fetched, impossible, at least highly unlikely. You know, even humorous. Getting land seemed reasonable, but the thought of children, even one child, was so ridiculous that Sarah, that she started to laugh. It seemed laughable to both of them. I'm sure that it was that plain, the promise, the prog program of God, though. This was what was meant to happen. And we have a similar example of the way the plan and program of God seem to be laughable. Consider the story of Noah and his ark. Noah built a huge boat on dry land. Think of the laughs from his friends and were having at his expense. In fact, throughout the Bible, we can read story after story of how people reacted to the seemingly impossible, impractical plans that God had which most people, at least at first, well, they didn't understand. But as God said to Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, which is something we humans just can't seem to get. And of course, selling cookies or giving up your homeland, family, and everything familiar was one thing, but what about trying to sell the message that Jesus was selling? Particularly if your slogan is, take up your cross and follow me. We find Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, a village some 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, walking with his disciples who follow him with such hope and, and expectation. But Jesus then goes on to tell them that the Son of Man, which is what he used to refer to himself as, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, but then, after three days, rise again. When Jesus tells Peter that he is going to die, well, Peter will not hear it. This can't happen to you, Lord, not to you. We know how Jesus responds to Peter. We hear the harshness of his rebuke and the difficulty of the message he goes on to proclaim to the disciples and the surrounding crowd. We see that the hope Jesus brings to us will ask something of us. There will be a cost. So we can see how selling cookies might be so much easier than what Jesus was selling. But the thing is, we don't re realize just how radical it was, how offensive those words of Jesus were from Mark's gospel to those who first heard them. For us, 
You see, the cross has become a sacred symbol of our faith. We, we display crosses at our church. We wear crosses as jewelry. But to read this text accurately, we need to remember that those who were following Jesus would have found that even the mention of a cross horrifying. They'd seen crucifixion for themselves and it was a horrible, horrible way to die. I heard that some scholars claim that this form of execution was a major contributor in the Roman government's attempt to take over as much of the ancient world as it could. You see, in the world in which Jesus lived, the Roman, Roman government ruled with an iron fist and used crucifixion as a symbol of what happens when those under their authority step out of line. However, I also read that Roman citizens were actually exempt from crucifixion, but the method was used liberally on criminals and especially on those who might serve as examples to others considering a disturbance of the peace. It was a public event that was meant to be especially shameful to the person dying as they left this world. So this is why Peter reacted so aggressively when Jesus said this. The most important thing was for Jesus as their leader to stay alive and as his friend Peter would do anything to spare Jesus from the pain and humiliation of crucifixion. All of the disciples had been so hopeful, so excited. Jesus was this one person they'd been waiting for for so long. He was the one who would restore the nation of Israel to all its former glory. Peter had said it. You are the Messiah, the one God has anointed to save the people. You can't suffer and die as you say. Peter was not expecting a Messiah that would be defeated. Even if God would raise him up on the third day, Peter was looking for a savior who would be invincible who would overpower all opposition, someone who would rescue the nation of Israel from the mess they were in. Peter, Ugh, Peter was a strong God, and who can blame him? Really, are we any different? When the crushing weight of hardship bears down us, when the voices of despair drown out all others, when it's one disappointment after another, don't we also want a strong God to avenge our hurts, to right our wrongs, and to put us back in control of things? Anything else would be, well, laughable. Whatever sacred connection we assign to the symbol of the cross was certainly not present in the minds of those who followed Jesus on that day that Mark recounts here in the Gospel. So you can imagine their confusion when they heard Jesus' words. Take up your cross. Is he crazy? So later in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is arrested, the disciples start running in every direction because of the suffering that he was taking on. Running just like he would. Like we would. They had pinned every hope on him. They desperately wanted a way out of the pain of their daily experiences. There he was, Jesus, 
he had all the makings of great politician, someone who would deliver them once and for all from Roman domination, from the pain of their poverty, from their constant desire to make their lives mean something. They had followed him in hopes that he would be the means of their escape, that he was there to turn a new page, that he would indeed usher in that kingdom that he was always talking about. Maybe even with some pretty sweet political appointments and positions of power just for them. Peter said it out loud, but I bet they were all thinking it. And so would we. See, they didn't have any interest in talking about their pain. They didn't want to be in pain. That was the whole point of following a charismatic leader, wasn't it? And they certainly did to, didn't want to hear that this one who was pinning all their hopes on talk about, hor about a horrifying as a cross. I don't want to take up my cross. I don't want to be anywhere near one of those things. No, they wanted all the problems of the suffering and doubt and all of this uncertainty to be gone quickly and easily. You might be familiar with the writer Hans Christian Andersen who wrote The Emperor's Clothes. If you've forgotten the story, it goes like this. An emperor of a prosperous city hires two swindlers who have arrived at the capital city. The emperor spends lavishly on clothing for himself at the expense of the state matters. Posing as weavers, the two new hires offer to supply him with a magnificent clothes that are invis invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. The emperor hires them and they set up looms and go to work. A succession of officials and then the emperor himself visit them to check on their progress. Each sees that the looms are empty but pretends otherwise to avoid being thought of as a fool. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. They mind dressing him and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with the pretense, not wanting to appear inept or stupid. Finally, a child blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. The people then realize that everyone has been fooled. Although startled, the emperor continues the procession, walking more proudly than ever. Jesus is doing the most audacious thing in this passage. He is naming the pain that all of us carry. He's making it obvious. He's talking about it. Throughout his life and teachings, Jesus makes clear that the hope he embodies, the hope he holds out to us, is not passive. Hope is not an idle wish for things to get better or ignoring the obvious. Instead, hope calls us into action. It asks us to align and ally ourselves with God, who is the source of hope, who calls us to participate in working for the wholeness of, of God's desires for us and for the world. It is easy to become overwhelmed by the forces that live in fierce opposition to this wholeness, to be blinded by the thing that is right in front of us, because of the current situation we are living through, or even the personal situation that we might be facing. 
As Jan Richardson, author, artist, and United Methodist minister puts it, at the heart of Jesus's rebuke to Peter and the hard, hard lesson that follows, there is a message about what it means to hope. To hope against hope, as Paul writes of Abraham. To hope when there seems no cause for hope. To hope in the face of forces that work against hope. We belong to a God who tells us, as Jesus tells us here, that what is torn down will be raised up, and what is destroyed will live again, because we belong to this God. Hope lives even when we feel we have lost it, and we cannot summon it upon ourselves. Hope does not depend on us, but it cannot do without it, by which I mean, Hope does not originate with us. It has its beginnings in God, who goes on providing for us with an extravagant stubbornness. It comes as a gift, a grace that we cannot manufacture, but hope does not need us for its ongoing survival. It asks us to give it legs in the world, to hear it into places of hopelessness, to enter into the rhythms of dying and rising that come as we follow Jesus and work with him for the healing of the world. Jan, thank you for those words. To follow Jesus is to walk a path of radical, empathetic love. It is the saying goes, to walk a mile in another's shoes. It is deeply to feel their suffering as we pray for them. It is to sit and listen and to not barge in with our easy answers. It is to recognize a world that is hurting and to join with others in lessening it. Gosh, life is not always fair. It wasn't fair to Jesus, but we do have a Savior who has suffered for us and is willing to suffer in our suffering and who promises us life and joy as we enter in the suffering of others. And so when we are faced with overwhelming odds or just with our own limitations, those who take up their cross and follow Jesus don't lose heart because there is a power beyond the cross, a power beyond our limitations, beyond our helplessness and our weakness. It is the power of God that brings life from death that brings healing from disease, that brings wholeness from our brokenness. We take up our cross when we embrace who we really are and accept our limitations and follow Jesus beyond them. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God in Jesus who came to give us abundant life, Give us the strength to take, to take up our cross and follow so that we might have the abundance of true life that you intend for us. And so that others may see your love and grace at work in us and follow with us as well. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. And now let us join our voices for our closing hymn this morning. There's a spirit in the air. Let us sing.